precisely what you intended. And because of who we are, Father, your word either hardens us or softens us to you. Uh, Help us as we look at um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism to understand better today why that is, and may we even more so see that it is all to your glory and because of your goodness and grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, we're just a little bit behind, so let's jump into all this. Uh, We are continuing to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, I know you guys all have the Shorter Catechism memorized uh, but for those who don't, you um, can uh, uh, find it in your Trinity hymnal, roughly around page 870-ish, somewhere in that area. And uh, today we're going to take on both questions 30 and 31. So if you don't mind turning to that, uh, we're going to look at questions 30 and 31. In a moment, I'm going to ask someone to read both of those together. But before we do read that... Um, let me just remind you, and I know you're all looking it up, which means you're not really listening to what I'm saying right now, but this is important if we don't say this to put this all in context, because I know that we're just kind of getting back into the groove of things. What we've been saying is that our salvation has a two-part process to it. It's, our, it's redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And we saw last week that Jesus actually accomplishes our redemption, his life of perfect obedience his substitutionary death on our behalf, in those things, he doesn't just purchase the potential for our being saved. He accomplishes our redemption. But in time, the Holy Spirit then has to apply that redemption to us. And the way that he does that, the work of the Holy Spirit, is summarized in, well, if you can still see it from last week, the so-called using a Latin term, ordo salutis. It simply means the order of salvation. And we looked at these steps, the effectual call, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. And what the catechism is going to do, it is it's going to go through each one of these steps. Today, it's going to go through effectual calling. That little arrow here was just when we were talking about Arminians who confuse those two steps. Now, one of the things you're going to see is that conversion, where faith and repentance is something that we do, is going to be referenced in the question that we're about to read. Um, and the confession actually mentions this today, happens to mention this, but doesn't unpack it till later, and then continues here. Um, you'll see later why they do that, but that's just something to be aware of. So, does everybody have a, a, the catechism in front of you, whether your own personal copy, electronic, or... Trinity Hymnal, page, again, anybody know the exact page, if you have it? 871, so we're not too far yet off of 870. So if somebody would read questions 30 and 31, along with their corresponding answer. All right, thank you, Tanya. So let's take a look briefly at some things that I want to just bring out on the questions, and I want to start unpacking some things in a little bit more detail. But the first question, how does the Spirit apply to us? So it's already been said in the previous question that the way we become partakers of redemption, Christ accomplished it, but the way we actually become a partaker of it is the application by the Spirit. The question is, is how? And it tells us, again, that notice the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ. So it's a real redemption that's already been purchased. It's not potential. Right, it's been applied. To, um, it's the spirit that applies it by what working faith in us, and so it mentions 
this idea of working faith, and then doesn't unpack it until much later on. We'll get to that uh, eventually. And in so doing, it unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. So there's several things that you see in there. One, again, is what I just said, uh, actual redemption purchased by Christ. The Spirit then applies it. The Spirit works faith in us, right? What does Ephesians 2.8 say? By, uh, by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of your own. It is the gift of God. So our faith is not something that we exercise. And that's so important because, as we've said before, if you grew up in an Arminian setting, or, or that's the setting that you came out of, where they teach that you exercise faith, and because of that, God responds with regeneration, that doesn't make sense if faith itself is a gift. So we're going to unpack that a bit more as we talk about why this has to come first. But it's important to, to see that, that even our faith is something that is created for us. Again, the fact that the Spirit is working, we could look at something like John 6, 6, 3, where it says it is the Spirit that makes one alive. The flesh profits nothing. Again, highlighting the fact that if you, and when we talk about the flesh, us in our natural state, if it can provide us with nothing, it is the Spirit that has to do all the work. So again, highlighting the fact that God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who begins our salvation, sees it through all the way through the very end. That's what we see in question 30, just on the surface without unpacking it. And then when you get to the actual question, what is this effectual calling, which is what we're going to unpack today, it starts by telling us what it's going to say on every one of these. When we look at justification, we look at adoption, so it's always the work of God's Spirit. And the things that we see, the elements whereby, and remember we've been learning as we've gone through the catechism how good they are with commas. Those commas give us the phrases. Each one of those would be bullet points is how we would do it today. So what does the Spirit do? It convinces us of our sin and misery. We've heard that term before, sin and misery, which is the estate, to use confessional language or catechism language, the estate into which we fell. When we sinned against God, we fell into a state, a condition of sin and misery, all the things that we see around us. So it, first of all, convinces us that that's the case. And you see a lot of people today who are not convinced that that's the case. Their eyes have to be open. It enlightens our mind in the knowledge of Christ. You have this new mind, right? Um, Acts twenty six eighteen, 18. Uh, to open our eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. This is uh, Paul when he's talking and he says, this is what the Spirit does. Opens that eyes, lets us see, that kind of thing. And then renews our wills. All right, so it's, it's a whole transformation of what we know, what we see, what we understand, what we do, what we think, how we behave, how we respond, all that. Uh, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. That new ability to be able to desire things. And after all that, the spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus, to exercise faith freely offered to us in the gospel. Okay, so those are just some of the things on the surface. Before we jump in, any questions about anything you see so far? So there are several things that we want to bring uh, to the fore here. And that is when we want to talk about what is effectual calling. The word effectual is not a word that we use all the time. Um, it simply means that it carries out whatever it is that you're talking about. It, it actually accomplishes what it set out to do. 
Uh, it comes from the same word from where we get effective and efficacious and that kind of thing. So when they talk about an efficacious treatment in medicine, you're basically saying this is the treatment that actually works. Other treatments are not efficacious. You can do them, but they don't bring around about the desired result. So an effectual calling is one that actually calls a person to Christ. Now, how does God bring people to salvation? Well, generally speaking, God uses the ministry of the word. It is through the word, through the preaching and pulpits, through unpacking and Bible studies and parents opening up devotions with their kids at the kitchen table and all those things. The ministry of the word is the primary means by which God brings us to himself, right? Um, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe and many other places that we can look at that kind of thing. Uh, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about the foolishness of preaching because, it, you know, and you think about it, transforming a whole world, um, taking, you know, some of the vilest people in the world, which includes us before we're saved, and making us different just because we hear words. But there's something in power in that word that actually does it. To the world, it seems a foolish thing. And Paul sits there and says, that is the primary means, right? And uh, that's why he calls us uh, as he ascends us into heaven in Matthew 28 to go out into all the nations. And what are we doing? We're taking the word out there. Uh, the only exception being, of course, when you're dealing with uh, children who might die in infancy, uh, adults who perhaps because of mental disabilities are unable to understand things. There are ways of dealing with that, which we deal with later in the uh, uh, confessions and the catechisms. But generally speaking, the way that you hear that word and you exercise, or rather the way that you come to salvation is you exercise faith in Christ because you heard, right? Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And those are not just idle words. I mean, we hear them, we're like, well, yeah, of course, but you've got to just see the force throughout all of scripture that emphasizes that it is the ministry of the word going out in its varied forms, but still the word that is what God uses to bring people to himself. Romans 1.16 is that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. So there is the power in that word, that gospel. So that brings us then to the question, why is it that some people believe when they hear the gospel in the word, and why do some people not believe? In other words, why is it that the gospel itself brings some people to the moment of conversion while others are hardened. And that's, you know, when I started my prayer, I said every time we hear the word, it'll do one of two things. It will harden us or it will soften us. Why is that? Anybody want to venture a guess? Election? Okay, unpack that for me. What does that mean? So Daniel is saying that because we are chosen, God elects those whom he is going to save, that when you hear the word, it might take time. And I want to talk about that. It might take time, might take a year, like you said, or so on. That sooner or later, one is softened, one responds positively. I'm going to, that's all correct. I want to take it even a little bit more granular. Why did we not respond when we first heard it? You know, if it took a year or 10 years or, you know, my friend Max, it took him 80 years, literally. Um, sometimes it takes a while. Why did you not respond here, but you respond there? There's several things that we want to look at. The first thing is that there's nothing in the gospel itself, in the words that are spoken, um, that means that some will believe and some won't believe. In the catechism question uh, 31, at the end it says, 
that Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And we need to really stop there for a moment because there are some people who argue that we should not offer the gospel freely, that we should only offer the gospel to the elect. Now, what's the problem with that view? Yeah, I think everybody pretty much said we, we don't know who they are. Spurgeon famously said it. If I knew who they were, if, they, if there was something as obvious as they all had yellow stripes painted on the back, I'd go around lifting up shirt tails and looking. Even as recent as um, through the 1960s, there's still a little denomination that exists that came out of that. There's a Presbyterian group that truly believes that you cannot offer the gospel. And that works its way out in other ways, maybe not as crude as that. Um, some folks will then sit there and say, all right, since we don't know, so we will still, you know, I'm looking out here, there's a whole panoply of people. Some might be elect, some might not be elect. I'll still speak it, but, but it's, not a, it's not a genuine offer except to the elect. Now, that's a slightly different take. God is not really offering it except to the elect. And even that, while it sounds at first like it's pretty good, it's not a good thing. Uh, Romans ten thirteen says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God truly puts it out there. There's nothing in the gospel that prevents a person from accepting the offer. When we go out there and we say, trust in Jesus Christ, believe in him, there's nothing in those words that prevents any person from exercising their free will and coming to faith. So that's an important thing to recognize. There's nothing in the gospel itself that limits it. It is truly offered. And truly, when God says, anybody who comes to the Son, you know, comes to me through the Son, will be accepted. Everybody. And if you've come from a Baptist background, you're like hearing alarm bells because you've been told, these guys don't believe that. These people don't believe that. I want you to hear. There's a whole chapter on free will in the confession, which, you know, uh, we're not doing the confession, we're doing the catechism, but, you know, we can talk about it some other time. Absolutely, everybody is offered that gospel freely. And if a person makes that choice, they will be accepted. God is genuine in his offer. It's not just that we have to offer it to the elect, but even as Jesus offers it, there's not, uh, there's not this idea that he only really in- offers it freely and he kind of is withholding it from the others that he's holding it for you but pulling it back no no it's freely offered and and it's out there okay the second thing then to realize if the reason people accept or don't accept is not in the gospel it's also not in the person there's not a single person who sits there and says well this person accepted this one did not well this one has a better character this one is a better person he has had uh, he's got a better mind he's able to reason more or he's got a pure heart or she's kinder there is nothing in you the individual that enables you to better respond Ephesians 2 1 says that we were what dead in our trespasses and sins so by our very nature there is nothing inherent in a single person that enables that person, I shouldn't say a single person, but in the individual that enables that person to respond to the free offer of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them. It's a very clear passage. 
He does not accept it, nor does he even understand it. Paul talks about elsewhere about having a veil, being darkened, the inability to, to see it. Some of the smartest people on the planet, so it has nothing to do with their smarts, have heard the gospel and have rejected it. Some of the, the purportedly nicest people, you know, I've got an uncle who's as inoffensive as, as anything and a great guy and everybody would love to have him as a neighbor. And, you know, he loves to go fishing and he's relaxed and he likes birds and, you know, oh, he's just a great guy. And he's not a believer. He's the brother to my other uncle whom you've met who's a ruling elder who's been here uh, at times. Two completely different, you know, two brothers just separated by a few years, grew up in the same home. And one is an elder in the church and lives for Jesus and the other one does not. What's happened? So it has nothing to do with one being better than the other innately, Right. So that's an important thing to point out. There's nothing limiting in the gospel itself, and there's nothing in you that enables you to do it. So what is the answer? The answer is what our catechism question is pointing out, that it is a special operation of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit that comes and makes it possible for a person to respond to the gospel. So essentially, the gospel goes out. I just want to be careful of our time here. Gospel goes out, it's preached to a whole bunch of people, and they hear it, and they're dead in their sin, and it means nothing to them until the Holy Spirit comes and works in you. And there's all sorts of language that's used in the Scriptures. Ephesians 2, 5 refers to it as a quickening or as an enlivening, making you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great mercy, made us alive in Christ. Right? So there's that language. In uh, Ephesians 2.10, we were created, and it's a new creation. So being made alive, being recreated. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 3 speaks about being what? Born again. So a new birth. Ephesians 2.6 talks about being raised up from the dead, and it's not referring to the final uh, resurrection on the last day. Uh, but to the spiritual resurrection that happens now. So all these different uh, metaphors of you were dead, but now you're made alive, now you're raised from the dead, you are born again, you are recreated. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ is that union that we saw reference in, in the catechism question there in the, number 30. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Something has happened. Something has changed and transformed that person. He was before blind. Now he sees. He was before deaf. Now he hears, etc. Before he was unwilling and unable to do things for the sake of Christ. Now he's able to do things. He was, uh, you might say, physically uh, spiritually lame, not physically, spiritually lame, and now he's spiritually enabled, and so on, and so on. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching his first sermon to Pentecost, the men are all struck by what they hear, and what do we need to do? Something has changed their hearts, right? First um, Thessalonians 2.13 talks about the Thessalonians receiving uh, the word, uh, as it is in truth, the word of God which works effectually in all them that believe. This idea then of that word changing and transforming. So that is the one thing that makes all the difference. 
It's not, the gospel is offered freely, and if a person responds, he will be accepted. But a person is unable to respond until the Spirit works in that person. One of the places that we see this as an analogy is in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus was truly dead. You could talk to Lazarus when he was dead. That would not have worked. You know, um, Tim Keller died um, back in in the spring, and then they had his uh, memorial service in August. I watched it online, and Kathy Keller came out and said, please do not go to the grave. Because, you know, Tim Keller's hugely popular throughout the world, and uh, there's going to be people going to his grave. She said, don't go there and talk to him. He's not there, you know. He's not listening. He can't hear you. He can hear Jesus. He can't hear you. That kind of thing. Um, If you had been there, Jesus walks in. There's Lazarus in the tomb. You could have talked to Lazarus, and it would have meant nothing. Lazarus would not have responded, right? It would be like the words going in through one ear and out the other. That's what happens when the gospel goes out to men who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It doesn't have any effect. But then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the power of the word of Jesus, that change, transforms him, resurrects him. And what does he do? He responds. That's what we're talking about here. The power of the word to change has to be the work of the spirit that enables you. Otherwise, you know, there are people out there hearing the word all the time. And it is being freely offered to them if they were to respond. But they won't respond because it's just going one ear out the other. But when the spirit works, it goes into one ear, drops into the heart, changes the heart. All of a sudden, there's a change. So, good. Does that all make sense? All right, let's deal with a couple of objections because our time is uh, growing short. One of the objections uh, when people hear this, especially if you come from a Baptistic background or something of that nature, is that this is forcing people to do things that they don't want to do. And it's off, I'm going to actually let you untangle these objections. So the first objection is that if you really, really, really want to come to faith, but the Spirit doesn't come to you particularly, then you're prevented. I mean, you want to be a Christian, you want to be saved, and yet God has cut you off. The other side is, I don't want to come to faith, and God has coerced me into it. He's made me do something. He has violated my free will. How do we answer that? Let's uh, take it. You want to jump on either one of those? Okay, let me deal with that one first. So if you heard what Tegan was saying is, I wouldn't want to in the first place. The person doesn't have that desire, that inclination. So there would be uh, no desire there and say, oh, well, he's, the Spirit's passing me by. He's just not going to talk to me. And I really, really, really want to, you know, be believe, to believe. You're right. Uh, we would not want to. And this is, gets back to the fact that God is both sovereign and man is responsible. And the way that works, just to, again, deal with that, and I, I, you know, I want to leave this because we're going to looking at looking at it every week, but this doesn't leave me. I need like three of these boards. <laughs> That's what we need. But the best way to do that is to, again, contrast a person's nature. Your nature as we've said before, determines who you are. It determines how you want to act. And um, I know I keep using the same example, but every one of you has a set of inclinations 
desires, right? Uh, wants, things that you, know, you want to do. And they're all driven by your nature. You always act in accordance with your nature. Um, I've mentioned before how R.C. Sproul has always, uh, would point out that you always do what you want. And you might say, oh, no, not always. My parents made me do this or whatever. No, your parents put a choice before you of alternatives. Do X, do Y. You're still choosing. But if you do X, you get a cookie. If you do Y, you know, you get sent to your room or whatever. And you just chose whichever of those two alternatives, you know, you wanted. But you made that choice. They never forced you. Or the RC example is, you know, a guy who robs you and says, give me your money or, or, or I'll kill you. And you sit there and you give him your wallet and you tell your friend later, I didn't want to do that. But, of course, you did want to. You did want to. You wanted more to lose your wallet and save your life than you wanted to die. So you chose to give him your wallet. But all those choices, whether it, you, you know, whether you grabbed orange juice or grapefruit juice in the morning uh, for breakfast today or whether you chose not to have breakfast at all or whatever, all those are choices that are at that very moment in um, what you most wanted to do. And they are part of your nature. So, you know, when you look at my dog, my dog wants to do dog things. He wants to chase after cars. He wants to bark at people, that kind of thing. If you have a cat, your cat wants to do cat things. Your cat wants to, you know, uh, chase canaries. Your cat wants to climb trees. My dog does not want to climb a tree. It's not in his nature. He wants to bury a bone. Your cat does not want to bury a bone, right? We act according to our nature. And if you take the cat and put him in a transmogrifier and he becomes a dog, he has a new nature. It's the Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in the transmogrifier, he is a new creation, right? So, that's what we see happening here. You just simply will not want to. So that's the first objection answered very ably by Tegan. We won't want to. It just simply is not there. You are dead, and dead people don't have those desires. Now, you're not physically dead, so you're hearing, you're processing, and so on, but your, your nature is one of spiritual deadness. You lack the desire to do. And what is it, by the way, let's define spiritual deadness. Does it mean you don't have a soul? No, of course not. It means that you are dead to the things of God, that you are in rebellion, that, that the uh, uh, relationship that Adam and Eve were created in, in which they were in harmony vertically with God, harmony, in harmony with one another, and in harmony with the creation, the fall has severed all those uh, harmonies. No longer in harmony with God, no longer in harmony with one another, with a fellow man, no longer in harmony with the creation. Everything is broken. Not all immediately to where it all disappeared or all, you know, but death is introduced, slow death. All the different things are breaking our relationships and, you know, all our um, uh, disasters that we see around us and our the creation and accidents and, and diseases and all those things is a result of the fall. But for us spiritually, it means that we are spiritually dead to that desire to be in harmony with God. We might see God. We might want him. Uh, as, you know, as a cosmic, you know, uh, bubblegum machine in the sky that we can put a coin in, a prayer in, turn the, you know, the, the little key or whatever, and out we get what we want. But to desire God for himself is absent. And so the free offer of the gospel basically says, take your sovereign self and put it to death and live instead for me. And as unbelievers, to a man, woman, child, etc., we all sit there and say, no, I don't want that. 
I want what I want. And I might want God to be around, so I still might believe in his existence, and I want him to give me what I want. But it's what I want. And when the Holy Spirit comes and makes us a new creation, your set of wants and inclinations and desires changes. And then you choose Christ freely. You were not coerced into choosing him. So I'm kind of going to get now into the second objection. Uh, But the second objection, oh, I didn't want to, and now he makes me do something I don't want to. When you, get, when you receive that new nature, you want to. You're now the cat who became a dog, and now you do want to bury bones. Before, you didn't want to do that. Now you want that. So before you were a believer, you didn't want to be in living for, for Christ at your expense. Now you want to. Does that make sense? So when you're, your friends, you know, you're talking to them, they go to the Big Eva churches, the Bible churches, and all that other stuff, and they raise those, and those are good points. Those folks are wrestling with very real issues, which is how can God be sovereign and I be responsible? We have to be able to answer them lovingly, kindly, show them that there is a scriptural response to those that preserves both your full freedom and your full responsibility because of that freedom, and at the same time that God remains who he's always said he is, sovereign over all things. And it really does work. It comes all together. All right, we only got 10 minutes left. Let me... um, let me talk about a couple of dangers. Ooh, I might actually finish on time today. Could it be? Let's see if we can pull it off. Um, I got these from G.I. Williamson. I think he does a good job with all this stuff, his catechism, his confession work and all that. Uh, and there's a couple of things that he points out that are two dangers that come out of this. And one is when we begin to understand our, com- our, our, our uh, regeneration and that kind of thing, we begin to look at, well, when did that happen? When did that happen? I mean, that's transforming nature. You know, it must be something big and explosive and exciting. For some people, it is. For some people, it is something that um, was just very sudden, you know, and one moment they're kicking against the goads, to use uh, the very language of Jesus as he spoke to Paul on the road to uh, Emmaus in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and the next moment, his eyes are opened, and he's able to see. But it's not the case for everyone. Sometimes the Spirit works slowly in preparing you and so on, and then when the actual moment comes, it's more like, you know, the soft turning of a key. If you listen, you hear it. But it's not, you know, banging down the door, dust and everything everywhere, you know, and in comes Jesus. Sometimes it's just an opening that door, like you do at 2 o'clock in the morning, right, when you're... Having to go to the bathroom in the middle. Okay, that's just me. I'm old. So I got to get up and go, and I don't want to wake Mary Joe up and all that. So, soft turning. But what happens, the danger is that some people are looking for that explosive moment. And so they sometimes take an emotional thing that happened in their life or something of that nature, and they ascribe to it perhaps things that they shouldn't ascribe. But they think because, you know, there, there's people who will sit there and say, you know, what that guy is saying, that preacher or that whatever, you know, I'm lecture, I'm listening to that sounds pretty good. And then there, you know, the music starts playing and just as I am for 78 times and, you know, and oh, and everybody's crying and, and some of you are in the men's chat channel, you know, you saw some of the things we were posting and everybody's going into emotional stuff or I'm in a Pentecostal church and I'm having a, beings, and all that, you know, stuff and then you think I've had an emotional experience and we confuse that with the work of, the re, of regeneration. And 
then you kind of fall into a false assurance kind of thing where you believe that because you got really excited one day and they were all singing, shine, Jesus, shine, with little streamers and all this I'm telling you is stuff I've seen. I'm not making any of it up, sadly, in person, you know. Um, So that's the emotional experience. Or the flip side is the person who sits there and says, "I, I don't have assurance because I've not had the explosive moment. You know, I didn't have this thing where I was running down this highway and then all of a sudden Jesus got me off the highway to hell and took me off onto, you know, and you're looking, everybody's looking for that big thing and that poor person who grew up in a, in a Christian home in which they were all, you know, good Presbyterians, which meant they were boring and bland, but they read the Bible every day to that child and they worked with that little one and so on and that little child became a believer quietly and, and, and that person may look back and say, you know, I don't have the experience of such and such. Am I really a believer? So there's a real danger when we do understand the idea that regeneration, oh, by the way, I didn't use that word, but when we talk about effectual calling, you know, often the other word that we use is regeneration, the recreation, the remaking, the bringing back to life. So I'll often be talking about that. Um, But it's the same thing. It's the result of the effectual call. Uh, and what we did here last week is we said sometimes you just get the external call, bounces off your, your, your skin, as it were, until you're regenerated, then you actually respond to the call. But, um, you know, when, when you're talking about your regeneration, you're, you recognize it's a real thing. There's a real danger in looking for some kind of big event that you can center in and say, that's when it happened. And that way you can sign a little certificate and, you know, and all that other stuff. And, and there are some people for whom that happens. Some of you here, you know, the elders, we have the privilege of listening to your testimonies as you become members of the church. And, you know, some of them are dramatic and big and, you know, 180 degrees and, uh, and all that other stuff. And others of you have this very quiet testimony. You grew up in a, in a Christian church and uh, Christian parents who loved you and, you know, and whatever. Uh, and, and all sorts of shades in between. So... The danger there is do not look for those emotional things or do not think that you needed to have one in order to be able to have assurance. So what is assurance? How can you know then? Can I ask you and then see what your response? How can I then know if I'm not looking for a big that I really am a believer? You feel convicted of your sin? It's in the catechism question. So you're, you're right on to it, right? Take a look at the catechism question. You're convicted of your sin, and what else? Do you believe the facts of the gospel now? You really believe that Jesus is God who came in the flesh and so on? You're convicted of your sin, and you truly do trust in him. And I have talked to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, who can sit there and say, I, I do believe you know, these things are true. I, I believe that Jesus died for me. I just don't feel it. And they, they, what, they, what they expect is to feel some kind of, you know, magic euphoria kind of stuff, which emotions come and they go. And sometimes in worship you have that or sometimes in something in your life and you're, you know, you're struck with how good God is and, and so on uh, or how merciful he's been to you and so on. Those emotions are there, but not every moment. You know, I don't feel that way when I'm doing my taxes, it's just, you know, taxes automatically kind of kill that. So those are not the things that we look for. Daniel. Yeah, you've got to make sure the contract, the legal form. Yep. 
That's right. Yeah, you've got to say the prayer, say it in the right way, the right words. Um, and we, just, we still fall into those. I mean, I, you know, I know you guys don't. Every time I say this, we're talking about people out there. You guys are well beyond this, right? Like when we pray. And when we pray, what do we have to say at the end? Because if you don't say it, the prayer doesn't, it bounces right off the ceiling. Yeah, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen is like, you know, full stop when you used to do, remember, anybody remember telegrams? You know, go for help. Stop. You know, call Lassie, or Lassie, call whatever. Stop. You know, that kind of thing. Okay, you guys have, maybe only five of you know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, we, we so often fall into that mechanical kind of, and, and then it comes back to, I have to do all these right things. So the other objection uh, that we can fall into is, and this one is, is just the flip side, is, well then, if I'm not called, if I'm not regenerated, then I am excused from the responsibility. Since I can't do it, then God can't hold me liable. How do we answer that one? Yeah, but I'm not responsible. He, he hasn't regenerated me. You're right, we're all caught in our sin, but... He's, you just said, unless I'm regenerated, so therefore I'm not responsible. You guys are probably on the right track. Oh, there's people I've heard that have actually have said that that are unbelievers. So the thought does occur to them. It's like, I'm not responsible. I'm off the hook. And, and they actually use that then as um, yeah, justification for I'm living the way I do because. So the answer comes into even in their deadness of their sin, which we all were in as well. What has God not removed? Hasn't removed their freedom. The freedom is still there. If God had removed their freedom, then we can say I'm not responsible. But no, God does not coerce any person to choose him. He does not coerce any person to not choose him or, you know, to reject him. It's a free choice. Again, I just erased it, but nature... Uh, that I wrote up there, that person will choose according to their nature. They freely choose not to. But the choice was freely offered to them. They have the freedom to make that choice. That they don't want to is something else. Whose fault is it that we don't want to make that choice? Ours. God told us, if you do this and you eat that tree, you're going to die. You're going to be broken in your fellowship with me. Everything is going to... And what does Adam and Eve do? That's great advice. I think I know better. And, you've, and ever since then, we've been, every sin is basically you're saying, thanks God for your advice. I don't trust you. I think I know better. Every sin. And that's where they're at. So um, the reason the person, you know, doesn't want to do so is because they don't want to do so. They literally don't want to. So therefore, they are responsible. Um, if they had been able to, and we already dealt with this objection, they had, oh, I really, really want to, but God, you're not letting me, then they're not responsible but they don't want to. They are offered the gospel. They're able to look at it. I mean, Christopher Hitchens, anybody know that name? Right? Atheist dude. Now, he's, he's died, sadly, as far as we can tell, without um, um, any kind of profession of faith, any kind of valid profession. This guy is extraordinarily intelligent, and he literally looked at the gospel, you know, every which way and, and interacted with, uh, with believers and had all sorts of people like that. He had every opportunity. He understood the claims of Jesus. In the end, it's not, when we talk about being veiled, we're not talking about like the people are stupid and, you know, I, I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, 
they understand the words. They understand the claim. They just sit there and say, I just don't buy it. I don't see how it can be real. It's fairy, you know, it's a fairy tale or it's a myth or so on. And they walk away. So that second objection then falls apart when we recognize that God never removes a person's freedom. Uh, if you were in my officer training class, you would hear us talk about freedom versus ability. That's what you have to look at. Man is free always, but in different states, as to use the confessional language, the estate, when human beings are in different conditions, before the fall, after the fall, after regeneration, and then when we're glorified and resurrected bodies, there are different sets of abilities at different times, but in all of those, man is always free. It means, by the way, uh, when Jesus returns and you're raised and, and you're in your new bodies and you're made perfect in every way, um, will you be free to do evil? Rob is correct. Yes, you will be free to do evil. Because if you're not free, you're no longer a moral agent. You no longer reflect God. You're no longer made in his image. You will be free, but you will not want to. You will be so perfectly aligned with God's desires that you will always make free choices that are God-honoring and good. Does that make sense? It just means that before you were saved, you were free to do good, but you never wanted to, and every choice that you made was one that did not honor God and was self-serving, not God-honoring. But you're always free. Right? Okay, let's stop there. All right, well then let's close and um, we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have made us as free moral agents that um, one of the most um, important and, and crucial aspects of who we are as those who are made in your image is the ability to make moral choices and to choose not just simply whether we're going to eat grapefruits or oranges, but to choose between good and evil. Father, we recognize that our hearts are inclined towards evil. Paul says so so clearly in that 14-point indictment of the human race in Romans 3, where he says, no one, is not, no one is good, not even one. It's a terrible thing for us to have to hear, but it's the truth. And we're so thankful, Father, that the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, has penetrated into our hearts because of your sovereign work. We thank you that you looked at us, and even though you saw nothing in us which made us worthy, you, out of your grace, your goodness, your mercy, and your compassion, chose us to be regenerated. We will be eternally grateful as we come to understand the implications of that more and more through the eons to come. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your fairness and your justice, which has been fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.